Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 357th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an English actress of stage and screen who is widely regarded as one of the great beauties and talents of her generation. She first attracted sizable public attention for her performance as Lady Rose, the Crawley's feisty and rebellious cousin, on the third, fourth, and fifth seasons of PBS's Downton Abbey, spanning 2012 through 2015. She then shot to full-fledged stardom as the titular lead of Kenneth Branagh's 2015 live-action Disney film, Cinderella, and she has since added to her following with projects like Edgar Wright's Baby Driver and Joe Wright's Darkest Hour, both released in 2017, 2018's Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, Danny Boyle's Yesterday in 2019, and most recently, Ben Wheatley's remake of the Best Picture Oscar winner of 80 years ago, Rebecca, which is coming to Netflix on October 21st, and in which she gives one of her best performances yet as the second Mrs. DeWinter a naive young woman who marries a wealthy man only to discover that he has a more complicated past than she initially realized. I'm talking, of course, about Lily James. Over the course of our conversation, the 31-year-old and I discussed the two actors in her family who largely inspired her to pursue acting herself, how Cinderella catapulted her to a different level of fame and opportunity, and how she responded to that, why, as grateful as she's been for the roles she's played since, she is now actively looking to break away from characters who are seen as good and pure, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lily, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great to have you. I have been a admirer for a while, I feel like, and uh, so it's exciting to have you. On this podcast, we always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in a place called Surrey, which is um, like the kind of the countryside. So only half an hour from London, it's home counties. Um, and my mum raised me and my two brothers and my father. He had lots of different jobs. He was an actor when he was young and, you know, lived on Sunset Boulevard, but then he became, ran an orchestra and then he ended up a businessman. He nice. did all sorts. <laughs> so late in her life, I got to know a bit the, the, legendary uh, Oscar-winning actress Patricia Neal. And mm -hmm. in the course of speaking with her, I'm pretty sure I learned a bit about your grandmother because yeah. I believe they went to college together and knew each other for her. So can you just tell folks who your grandmother was? I guess this mm -hmm. is your father's mother. 
And, My father's um, mother, yeah. yeah. Wow, that's so cool that you mentioned <laughs> her and that you figured yeah. that link out. Um, yeah, so my grandmother was called Helen Horton and she was an actress, beautiful, worked her whole career. Right at the end, she got shaky, but she still did radio. She she, she was amazing. Um, she was the voice of the mothership in, in Alien. <laughs> she was in <laughs> Superman and she had Benny Hill. And, and then... Um, but Patricia Neal was her best friend. I think they went to drama school together and um, they were best friends throughout their whole lives, I think. And I remember once going to see a show in London and Patricia was visiting and she, at the end, she clapped and said, bravo, bravo, in an American accent. And I thought it was the coolest <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> and ever since then, I've always liked shouting bravo at the end of a, yeah. <laughs> end of a play. <laughs> now, do you think that it was having people like this in your life you mentioned your dad had been an actor uh, mm. obviously your grandmother right to the end was 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 having performers in your life the thing that made you want to be a performer or was because at the same time I've read that more than acting earlier on it was music that was your uh, yeah. primary passion yeah I think it started out as music and singing and my dad used to and my mom actually had the best record collection and he made all these cassette tapes of his favorite music and and I have them all on my Spotify Spotify now they're such cool playlists um like really eclectic it goes from like Queen to Doris Day to it's just it's brilliant but I think for sure like my father and my grandmother was such an actress she just had the most amazing voice and she was so glamorous and told the best stories and I think that certainly their influence was really strong in me wanting to, and my dad was always writing poems and telling us stories and make, and he, I don't really know what he actually sounded like. He was always talking in a different accent. So I'm not sure what his real voice was. So I definitely think that was the impulse. Just reading as much as I could to prep for this, it seems like you went off to boarding school at your own request, which may not have been the most common thing. Was this like a Harry Potter influence decision or what was, what was this yeah, about? It was like an Enid Blyton version of um, J.K. <laughs> Rowling. It was um, stories like the twins at St. Clair's and God, there was another one and the Mallory Towers. And mm-hmm. I had my mom's old books and they, you know, when the, when a book smells old, it's one of my favorite smells in them. And I bet there was, you know, talk of midnight feasts and sneaking out at night. And I was just desperate to go to the boarding school. Um, <laughs> so I went young. I think I was 11, um, wow. which, which is quite more and more I realized it's quite a it's quite an intense thing to leave your family at that age um but I I did have a great time I think it made me quite independent and quite sort of um and tough in a way because you don't have that immediate familial support system you sort of just have to get get on with it um so yeah and so when when you wrap that how many years would like at what age do you finish there is that like high school basically yeah, you go to 18. So I was there from 11 to 18. Yeah. So I have great, great, great friends though. And um, it was actually a boarding school where people were from all over the place. It wasn't, um, you know, it was all my, I just, and my friends are all still my best friends. So I definitely gained in that department. Was one of them the reason that you decided to go to drama school? I've, I've tried to pin down like, where was that decision made? Because again, it seemed like there was this wavering between music and acting and different mm-hmm. things. What tipped the scale to to try to go to drama school? Well, you know, it was, I actually really do miss singing and I kind of want to keep, I want to go back to it more, but I, I auditioned, when I auditioned for drama schools, I also auditioned for music and I just loved the drama school I ended up going to. There was a particular teacher called Christian Burgess and he was so in the audition, even he was so challenging and was so difficult and painful and emotional. And I just thought, wow, I want to be <laughs> toyed with and been on this kind of like mad journey. They, they sort of, they really push your buttons. And I think at that time that felt really intoxicating and exciting to me. And so this is Guildhall. Is Guildhall a two, it's two years? Three, yeah. Three, three. years. Yeah. Okay. And when you were going off there, was the idea, or as you, I guess in your mind during that time, is the idea purely, I would like to be a theater actress? Or is the idea always, or has there always been something in your head that, you know, screen acting would be cool? I really don't think I can. I mean, even though my grandmother was an actress and my, 
I didn't really get my head around the idea of screen acting. It was definitely theatre. And I remember when I was 17, I got an audition for Sweeney Todd when they did the musical film. And and because I didn't really understand it, even the fact that I, I'd got sort of spotted in a national youth production and and I just assumed I'd get it. I was like, wow, they've spotted me. This, this is my big break. I'm going to be in Sweeney Todd. I'm going to be in a movie. And I didn't even get past the first round. <laughs> and I think that was a real, a really good lesson to have right at the start. And so I think then I, <laughs> I never really thought that movies would happen. Like I didn't, that wasn't something I could get my head around. So it was been quite a pleasant surprise to be in something. And really like the training at, at drama school was geared to theater, right? Totally theater. I mean, you do like three minutes of film acting and that usually involves like holding a boom or holding the camera or, or like doing the clapperboard. <laughs> it's not, it's not very thorough. Right. So one of the things I got the sense of just from, again, reading some stuff was that while you were even at drama school, you were there some doubts about this being the correct path to be on? Was there, um, you know, some reservations even in the middle of it all? Yeah, it's, I think I'm, I get some comfort from the fact I, I speak to actors and I think a lot of actors find acting really hard and sort of makes you anxious. And sometimes it can be a really like quite twisted, t- toxic relationship <laughs> between being an actor and yourself. And, um, and I, and I've heard that from people. So, um, and it doesn't necessarily ever get easier. And I think there was a moment in drama school, I, I lost my father during that time and, um, I think I sort of questioned why I was doing it and what it was for and who am I to put on a show, who am I to um, try and convey something I don't understand. I even thought the core of acting felt kind of somehow disrespectful to people that were really going through it and what makes me think I can sort of move or share that or be honest in that way. And so I I sort of battled with it. Um, But... uh, now I, especially after lockdown, having not been able to do it for a long time, it's really cemented the fact that I do want to do this, <laughs> that I love <Okay>. it. <laughs> Thank <Good. you>. <laughs> <laughs> so you graduate, I guess, 2010 and it seems like you were getting work pretty quickly, which is, which is, uh, not always the case. So that's a, that, that part was, I'm sure, ex, uh, you know, exciting and good. Now, just to pause for a moment you were not born with the name lily james why mm. when and when and why did that part change well it's this funny thing i think it happens for you guys as well but we can't join spotlight which is where all actors in the whole of england's pictures are in and cast and directors find them in your page like 7089 or something <laughs> and <laughs> And there already was a Lily Thompson and she was a circus, she is, I guess, a circus performer or something. And I, I, I was, I was so upset. I couldn't be, I couldn't have my name, but it kind of coincided perfectly. James was my dad's name. So in the end I decided to take his name and cause he was an actor and, and now I'm so grateful. It feels like there's a disconnect between me as Lily Thompson and Lily James as an actor. And it's quite a nice thing now. Yeah. Okay. So again, working right away out of school, some early, you know, I see BBC TV and some, some good, really major theatrical roles. I saw you're getting great, great notices for Othello and all kinds of stuff right out of the gate. But obviously the thing that I think most of us first, you know, discovered you in was Downton Abbey. And, Mm. um, can you just explain how, you know, the show was already going for a couple of seasons. How did it come about that, I guess, were you, were you a follower of the show? Were you aware of it? And then how did you end up uh, as Lady Rose? Um, I was a huge follower of the show. Like all English girls, I was obsessed with period dramas. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And so um, I was a massive fan of the show. And I, when I got the audition, it was really early on. It was really my big first job. And and I just couldn't believe it. I, I I read Lady Sybil, Jess Brown Finley's character. I read, they hadn't even really written the part yet. They just, they said she's a sort of naughty, rebellious cousin from London. And I read Lady Sybil's lines and I think I only did one audition. And when I found out I got it, I was in a cafe and I spilt my drink everywhere and I screamed. And um, yeah, it was a really, 
surreal sort of landmark in my I actually really had a dream about Julian Fellows the other night I dreamt, I dreamt that as I was, one does as one does I dreamt that I was trying to get a part in the new movie <laughs> so hopefully that will happen <laughs> yeah um now initially I guess it was when you got it it was only to be a I guess would you call it like a guest star part it wasn't a, uh, it only became a regular in the fourth and fifth series was that the, the result like did julian explain to you it's because he was responding to what you were doing or audience it like how did that happen gosh you know i don't know no i don't i wasn't i i certainly was so pleased when it kind of kept going because you never know until you get the scripts it's this awful thing where you're like god am i gonna die am i gonna be written out am i something <laughs> awful gonna have a hit by a bus it was wonderful doing it though because i did feel like well I think she was a bit love hate but people were really nice to me about like in the way that they were like oh she's um she's so different and she's full of life and she sort of shook things up a bit so I did feel and I felt so a part of the family instantly with that like gang of actors they are oh my god they were just as a first big job to be amongst that caliber of actors and also for them all to be such lovely wonderful supportive people we had such a good time well that's actually where i wanted to go next because i mean was there even time to kind of take in the fact that your work and maybe learn some things from being around maggie smith penelope wilton mm. phyllis logan these people that have been doing it forever on stage and screen which i know mm. is also your plan so you know, was there actually time to kind of watch what other people were doing? No, oh, always, always watching. I mean, I just noticed the ease between Maggie Smith and Penelope Wilton. There's this this kind of relaxation, ease and sponta- spontaneity. You know, they're so alive. So they really riff on screen and off screen. <laughs> and the sharpest wit you'll ever, ever come across. Um, <laughs> but one of my first scenes... Well, the very first scene was a dining room scene and they all hid and jumped out from behind furniture, which was terrifying. <laughs> um, but my but my main scene where I had proper dialogue was a one-on-one against Maggie Smith. And it's sort of like we sort of take each other on a bit. And I I remember saying something along the lines of going, oh God, I don't know, is, do you think it's all right or something? And she went, oh, I don't know, you, you do it. Like she was in a way, in quite a sort of dismissive way, she was going, you've got this, you own this go for it, you know? And so well, that's how I interpreted it anyway. Right. right. Well, uh, obviously Rose moved off to New York and so we did not see her in the film that recently mm. happened, but I guess it, you know, in the midst of your involvement with Downton Abbey is when I guess Cinderella first started kind mm. of percolating. Um, and just the way you ended up playing Cinderella is almost like a Cinderella story from what I've been able to determine because you did not come in there initially to read for Cinderella, right? No, I was reading for one of the stepsisters. Yeah. And so I, how I, does this happen? I had this like hideous orange pink tie dye jumper on, um, but I <laughs> dyed my hair blonde for Downton Abbey. And so I guess I looked a bit different and I really do remember there was a moment, like that while I was there, the casting director said, do you want to read for Cinderella? And I was like, oh, I did not think of myself as a Cinderella at all. And, and I loved the stepsisters. They were so funny. And then I, I remember going into the little toilet down this horrible, dark and damp corridor and reading the brief. And there was something they said about her that had been something my parents had always said to me and particularly my dad, actually. And so I remember going, oh, it's meant to be. And I <laughs> sort of felt that through the whole I mean, at the very end, my agent was like, listen, you're not going to get this. So just go in and have fun. And there's going to be important people in the room. So just, you know, and I really did. I was spinning around like a little kid, but there was a part of me that felt it was meant to be. And I think sometimes that happens to do some parts are for you and some aren't, you know. What was, can I ask, what was the thing that the description that you recognized or that seemed familiar? Well, yeah, it said that it was something about having a generous nature, um, Mm -hmm. which I think all parents think about their child. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting, though, that this was not like, you know, hey, we'll call you in two days. This was a very drawn out process. You leave, go back, I guess, to Downton, and then Kenneth Branagh comes in as the director. I don't know Mm. who it had been originally. And Mm. so I was reading what he was saying that essentially – He's now catching up on all these auditions that were made before he was even around Mm -hmm. and sort of half paying attention. And here, I guess the main thing that that 
uh, initially caught his attention about you was your voice. Now, has he, did he say this to you or should I read the quote of what he said? I don't know this. (laughs) (laughs) So he says, quote, I love the quality of her voice. I love the warmth tone and range in it. I found it very expressive. And then he said through this drawn out casting process, quote, she kept her good humor and she kept her patience. She kept finding a playful quality that in itself seemed to me like a great harbinger of good fortune for the part, close quote. But isn't that interesting that, you know, at a people in this business are so focused on um, Mm. appearance, but it was actually, and I see what he's saying. Like there, you do have a, a a cool voice, but, and our listener, (laughs) I guess when people listening to the podcast, that's going to be all they're taking in right now. But um, so anyway, how do you, do you remember how you learned you got the part? Yeah. Again, I was, I was, um, oh my God, it was the longest drawn out process. It was torture. (laughs) Um, and even in the screen test, they'd made you a version of the dress. So you literally got to wear the dress and then the ball gown and then the thought that you was, that was that, you know, it was, was <laughs> but I, I, I was filming Downton and I was in my tiny little three-way trailer in the middle of a field with sheep everywhere at Highclere Castle. <laughs> and Ken rang me himself. And the first time he called me, there's terrible Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi there. And he called me and he said, listen, Lily, I really need to talk to you. And I, and the phone cut out and I, I was sure he would be calling me to say, look, you did so well, but we've got, you know, and that's why he was personally calling me. Otherwise I thought that my agent would tell me that I got the part. And then he told me, he called me back and he told me I got the part and Michelle Dockery and Laura Carmichael were like hanging outside the trailer and they were like, you got it. Did you get it? I was like, I got it. (laughs) And (laughs) it was, and then we went to do a big dinner scene and Hugh Bonneville stood up around the table and was like, Lily's going to be Cinderella. And it was just, they were really sweet and really shared in the sort of, the sort of celebration of that um, moment. (laughs) It was lovely. That's awesome. Well, so this was going to be your first time really carrying a movie and I just wonder, was that fun, stressful, that the, the responsibility that comes with being at the top of, you know, you were with some wonderful people in there <laughs> as well. But I mean, uh, you're the title character. Was that uh, how did you feel just in terms of your own kind of mindset as that all went down? Yeah, that kind of um, flipped flipped around um, during the filming because on one hand I had, like you said, these actors, you know, Kate Blanche, Ellen Ron Carter, these people that would, these actors that are just, they carry anything that they're in, even if they're in it for three seconds, they make a movie. Um, But also Kenneth Branagh, you know, he was, how he tells stories, how he shapes epic and and beauty with such delicacy and, and, and he made it feel, I knew that in his hands he was going to, take care of it and make it poignant beyond a sort of a cheesier version of the story. And, but there was times, there was one particularly bad day where I was literally trying to, I was so self-conscious and scared. I was trying to angle myself out of a shot as if I could really avoid <laughs> being in the movie. I was trying to turn my head and Ken was like, what are you doing? You're going to be in the film. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting. I mean, some of a lot of our listeners are in the business, but plenty of them are not. And so I just want to kind of raise a point about how, you know, somebody comes to feel at home in a part. From what I had read, you've said that something, whether it was the horse riding or particularly the costumes, can really make a big difference for that. You you put on the actual ball gown dress, you know, not the one from the audition, but a, the real, I think, Sandy Powell uh, Oscar nominated mm. version. And it, what does that do for an actor? Oh, it's so transformative because it's like a suit of armor. I mean, that dress was, it was, I really transformed. Um, I always used to think that I had a moment where, when in the runaway bride with Judah Roberts, where she puts on this amazing dress and she goes, ding, ding, like she's a bell. <laughs> and I always used to put it on and go, ding, ding. Um, yeah, it was like, it, I, f- I always feel the costume fittings teach you how you stand, how you move. It's so essential. Um, and somehow it just triggers my imagination about the character. Um, oh, and always, and the horse riding and the dancing and anything physical, again, it's just your little keys and your little triggers into who the person is. And it's, it's, um, I, I love the first costume fitting. I, I really live for that moment. It's the first time I really grasp it somehow. I don't know. 
So now, even before that movie comes out, you're being photographed by Annie Leibovitz mm-hmm. and appearing on these kind of like larger than life billboards in Times Square and Sunset Boulevard. Then it comes out and is a hit and suddenly your fashion is being dissected and every other aspect, right? Um, you're being asked to be the face of beauty products. You are, I would imagine, being recognized a lot more. How did you acclimate to all this? This is a big change suddenly. I was reading interviews not long before Cinderella where you're saying nobody even mm. recognized you anywhere. It was just, and yeah. then I, look, I don't know. I don't know what it's like now, but I would assume it's very different. So how do you handle a change like that? Good question. I'm still trying to handle it. I'm still trying to figure that out. It's the reality versus how it appears is always so different. I, it's funny. I, um, I, I, when you were just saying that, I remembered that when I was, I was the Berlin Film Festival. It was my first red carpet. I was in this amazing Dior pink dress. I had diamonds on. I had hair and makeup, and it was just on one hand one of the greatest days of my life. I had my family with me, but I also <laughs> had a terrible urine infection and I had oh. to stop off in the convoy of all the black cars and pull off in a petrol station, go into that <laughs> horrible loo and sit there and then got to the red carpet and suddenly it's all glamorous again. And I feel that sort of sums it up. It's like this yeah. amazing contrast between these super glamorous, incredible life rewarding moments and then the, the complete flip reverse of it is these sort of real difficult weird moments um but uh I think having your your family I always try to have my family with me at those things and that's the best way to kind of keep the sort of your your sort of sanity (laughs) yeah and I guess another thing that you have consistently done which you know we actually just a few weeks ago had Kate Blanchett on the podcast and she did that she's done the same thing throughout her career is just constantly go back and forth, go back to the theater, which um, it seems like there's something grounding maybe about that. And in this case, the first time you did that after having your profile explode was with the same people with whom your profile exploded, right? (laughs) So how did it come about that you, Kenneth Branagh, Richard Madden from Cinderella, and then a few other people afterwards uh, ended up doing Romeo and Juliet very, very soon after. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember Ken was doing this great season at the um, Garrick Theatre, and it was so exciting. I'd heard that he was doing the season, and by this point, I'm, you know, I have such a had the most incredible working relationship with Ken in that I found him to be such a generous, thought-provoking, emotional, sensitive director. And it was one of the best collaborations I've had um, in my career, really. And um, and so then when we were doing the press tour, in fact, we were doing a photo shoot and Ken was all dressed up too. It was me, Ken, and Richard Madden for Vanity Fair or something. And he, he asked me, well, would you like to be Juliet and Romeo and Juliet my season? And I said, yes. And he said, and can I go outside and ask Richard to be your Romeo? And I said, yes. <laughs> um, so the sort of the stem of that idea, the seed of that idea happened then. And then it grew out into the cast that we had. And I loved, God, I loved being on stage. I'm so heartbroken about everything at the moment with theatre. And I'm just longing for it to start back up again. And I'm going to try and make that a priority. Although I'm sure every actor on the planet will um, <laughs> be a bum fight to get into theater, I hope. So back to, you know, screen acting after that with, I guess, or, you know, who knows chronologically when things were actually being done versus when they, but War and Peace, limited series, uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, period pieces, uh, some with a little bit of parody, obviously, Mm -hmm. but then is a thing that I think maybe many Americans who were not the demo for Cinderella then discovered you through with Baby Driver. And mm. I wonder, was that the first time where it's like, okay, I may have a perception as I am the British, like mm. many young British actresses, period pieces. And mm. so, no, I, I'm also a modern chick. Mm. And like, how, or was it just, you know, what was the, maybe that was, maybe it was because it's Edgar Wright. Maybe it was something else. But I just, it feels like that was the first time we saw you as, somebody real in this in century the modern sense right, right, <laughs> yeah. right. no it was totally a part of that decision and I what better director to make you a cool modern chick than Edgar Wright <laughs> I mean I suddenly felt like I had street cred I was like I've just upped in the stakes of coolness <laughs> <laughs> hugely um, um 
yeah, it was, it was the, it was everything with that job though. It was the script. It was getting an iPad to read the script, which had the music synced in with the scenes. It was Edgar Wright. It was the cast. It was, you know, I'm so, it was, and oh God, every, every seat, every moment from it sort of felt iconic. and, And I felt that even reading it, there was, and I love what he gave me the most amazing list of films to watch, like, you know, like leaving Las Vegas and all these like really cool films with cool women in them and, and a sort of heightened romance and sort of edge to them, a danger to them. And God, I loved working with Edgar. I really think he's a genius. <laughs> I think, yeah. And that movie did tremendously. And, and in the same year uh, to, you know, just kind of, emphasize the range i mean you're then winston churchill's secretary in darkest hour a movie that gets nominated for best picture gary oldman wins best mm. actor i had read a funny thing where you're saying like you didn't really even meet gary oldman until the end because he was so buried under this oscar winning eventually mm. makeup and hair what was the primary though takeaway of something like that that was a really maybe the most acclaimed movie up to that point right yeah that was again it was I was in fact I was Joe Wright came the Wright brothers but I worked with both of them (laughs) Joe Wright came to see me in Romeo and Juliet and I I met him afterwards and he he told me about this story and how he wanted to kind of see Churchill through the eyes of his secretary and she was a real person and I read her book and and it just felt again I love Joe's movies um as I said I was a period drama girl through and through so to be in one of his films from you know atonement to prime prejudice it was just like a dream come true so yeah that was a great I, I had like six weeks of type touch typing <laughs> it was really thorough I was really typing those speeches and and as I said like Gary just was not Gary I couldn't apart from a small twinkle in his eye right in in the center of his eye where the light hit it I I couldn't well there's that great clip of him like dancing right what was he doing yeah with the hey dude yeah with the guys (laughs) in the cabinet in parliament yeah it was really really atmospheric I mean Joe created the war rooms um at Ealing Studios or whatever studios we were at and so the only difference was walls could move for the camera. Other than that, it was like being in the war rooms for a long time. It was weeks on mm-hmm. end. So it really felt, um, there was a real atmosphere to that job. Um, and my, and I thought of my granny a lot because she was lived, she'd lived in France during the second world war and she had to leave her home and she has all these stories and she's written her story. She was 11 to 16 years old, uh, in occupied France. So I kind of felt this connection like we all do, but I, I, um, I sort of felt I looked like my granny. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was, it felt really emotional as well, that job. Well, after coming off such a, you know, serious, important movie, I guess there was some hesitation on the part of your agents to even approach you about a light, fun musical sequel to Mamma Mia. And yet you were all in, right? It sounded yeah. like that was right after. Yeah, I was like, do you guys know me at all? (laughs) 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 I'm in. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And and I guess, you know, you had this as, you you know, the first love in a sense, singing and dancing and all of that. I mean, this was a chance to do that. But at the same time, is it daunting to be doing that in a movie? Is it daunting to be doing that in the footsteps, essentially, of Meryl Streep? Or could Mm. you just kind of let loose and have a have a ball? I did let loose and have a ball. I really did. I did feel the pressure, of course, but I, because Meryl, like not only was it Meryl who's just the best at everything. I, I sometimes can't believe how funny she is. And then she's also this, like the most, you know, ugh, just as an actor, there's just nothing she can't do. And she does it with such truth and subtlety and sincerity, no, no matter the size, no matter how absurd even it's, 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 it's just sort of magic. And she created this character though that's so beloved and so bonkers. And so I, I really just wanted people to believe that I could at least grow into that woman. I didn't need to be as good. I just needed to, you just needed to think I had the potential. Um, <laughs> it was easier that it was film then I would love to do a musical on stage one day but I think that you have to have balls and you have to do it eight times a week and um <laughs> it's a lot so knowing that I could record it was helpful um yeah it was a nice. really great job though well another one with with musical elements although I wouldn't 
I don't think it's a straight musical in any sense, but very charming was just, it feels like some ways like yesterday in some ways like 10 years ago because of the freaking pandemic. But uh, yesterday, um, this is Danny Boyle, who I know was someone who you like basically all actors, I think, hold in, held in very mm-hmm. high esteem. And it's, you know, I guess for people who haven't seen it yet, and I'm sure it's streaming now, essentially like something happens and there's a guy who is the only person on earth who remembers the Beatles songs and passes off as if he wrote them. And you are both the manager and in a Notting Hill sense. And this was the way it was either you have a Notting Hill kind of line uh, that kind of is a log line in a sense, quote, I've been waiting half my life for you to wake up and love me, but I am a school teacher and you are the world's greatest singer songwriter, close quote. Um, So, you know, it is a, that is, I went in there like, all right, what, you know, Prove me wrong, but I, I was skeptical. And it, mm. everybody in the had such a, a fun, you know, charming. I guess it all the pieces were there. So what was mm-hmm. anything you want to say about that? Well, I mean, again, Danning Boyle, it's nice sometimes to think of like the directors you've worked with because I've I've really been lucky in this first like 10 years of my career to to work with such sort of like important, formidable, wonderful directors and like Danny, I remember in my first audition was just like a little kid. He was like a puppy. He was like running around the room. He was doing the scenes with me. He has just this unending enthusiasm and passion. And as soon as I walked out that audition, I called my agent and I was like, I have to, and I was Richard Curtis was in there too, just for good measure, you know, equally the most wonderful guy. And, Mm -hmm. um, with such a childlike quality and, um, and in an innocence almost like there's a sort of like joy to filmmaking with those two guys that feels so pure and it's so infectious. And I call my agent immediately. I was like, I have to, I hope I really want to get this because I really want to work with Danny. Um, and it, it exceeded all my expectations and it was, and just to be listening to the Beatles all day, every day, <laughs> it was <laughs> joyful. Um, yeah. Back to back years, I guess, pretty much of, ABBA and the Beatles is not, know, not bad. Not bad at all. <laughs> okay. Now, it does seem, and I could be overanalyzing things, but it does seem like in the decisions made since around then, maybe even slightly before, it seems like maybe you've been gravitating towards people who are characters who are less easily described as sweet, good, charming, you know, all the things. Like, people... I, everybody who's ever reviewed or written about you, and I've read mm. most of it to prep for this. I'm sorry. You know, it's pretty, no, I mean, it's been fun, it's, but it's like pretty much it's like what a breath of fresh air. She's like a tall glass water in the sense like everybody loves. That's a great compliment. Everybody loves. They see you and they're like their day is better. But mm. I think that seems like you reacted against that in a sense. And maybe the first time, if I'm not reading too much into it would have been in, in like the most creative way subverting that what is all about Eve except mm. a woman posing as a good person mm. who then turns out to be a little bit uh, mm. more complex than you then met the eye. So mm. here you are West End with Jillian Anderson, who you'd already done War and Peace with um, mm. as Margot, but you're the Ann Baxter character. Was that a motivation for doing that or some of the other things around that time? Yeah, that was pretty much uh, that. It was that in a nutshell. Yeah, <laughs> I've always thought alongside that, like wanting to kind of just challenge people's perceptions of me, or or feel like even if it's like a huge compliment, sometimes it can feel limiting, you know. And um, so I wanted to play the sweet innocent and reveal the kind of truth behind behind this person um and play with people's perception and then beyond that I also I often feel like in theater you're given permission to play characters really and I I want to push this for even further because that was just like the genesis of it but mm-hmm. that you're given permission to play characters that aren't your typecasting or you can be mm-hmm. really bold and 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 it doesn't matter so much because there's not a camera in your right in your face where it picks up everything that you're thinking regardless <laughs> so um I thought the stage was a good place to do it too. And it seems to have 
I don't know, again, if this was a primary driver for doing things like this, but Littlewoods, you're playing a single mom living in a trailer in North Dakota who's trying to get an abortion. That mm-hmm. is a long way from Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, just the, some of these other decisions leading up to, of course, Rebecca, which I guess is about to drop. I'm trying to think in terms of the dates when it will be on Netflix, but right around now. Uh, yeah. And this was obviously originally made 80 years ago. Hitchcock created essentially that was the beginning of Joan Fontaine, mm. who at the end of her life, I, I was lucky enough to interview her a little bit about wow. it. And it was just that was the ch- turning point in her life. And, yeah. um, you know, yeah. that she was no longer Olivia de Havilland's like little sister. She was her own. Um, wow. So anyway, oh I God, guess. I'm gonna go <laughs> <to it. laughs> well, I just wonder for you, though, um, you know, how familiar I don't know if it would be a good or bad thing to be particularly familiar ahead of time with the book, with the first version of the movie, were those things that you knew about? Yeah, I'd seen the movie um, and I, I did actually, you know what, I did watch it again because I didn't, when I did Romeo and Juliet, Juliet, I didn't, I didn't watch the movies before either of them and I, because I didn't want to be too influenced and then afterwards I felt like actually it's all, copying is great, and, <laughs> no, but it's, it's all sort of, it's all different people's interpretation and I've seen plays over and over, I've seen The Seagull, I've seen so many different Ninas, I've played Nina and I've drawn yeah. from that and so I felt actually I don't need to be rigid about this idea that it would just corrupt my mind and I'd only see it a certain way. And 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 definitely so with the book. I mean, the book I I clung on to probably too much actually. Um I think I could have maybe let it go more. Um, but I I just I clung on to it like a bird, you know, because I think <laughs> it's so it's so wonderful. But in doing that, you kind of crush it a bit. So I probably should have I should have let it go. Um, yeah, I did use both the book and the movie. Well, and it seems like a particularly challenging part for an actress, I would think, because so much of it is what's she's living in her own head. Right. I mean, Mm. am I am I losing it? Is he did he do it? Mm. All these things for you. Was that daunting, exciting? You know, how do you it feels like it puts more more on your shoulders than most parts would. Yeah, I, I was really fascinated, though, by this huge, huge disparity between how my internal brain is going right now and versus how I come across. And so um, basically anxiety. And so um, I've, I found that to be something that I really know well. And um, and so I, I wanted to explore that and 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 Ben Wheatley actually came and saw me in all about Eve and he was like you know this is a girl there's a bit of Eve in her I mean she comes across a certain way but look at what she does I mean she stands by a murderer as she she marries a man she barely knows um, she's you know there's a lot to this girl more than you know she says about herself so I found that that was a gift to to sort of be able to explore um I mean, the book is just a well of it. I mean, and it just trips you up at every corner. I mean, I always felt like I was falling into a dark hole with it. It's so surprising. It's so twisted. It's so not what you think. Um, depending how you read it, you just, it's so shocking. Um, so yeah, it was a rabbit hole. Oh yeah, no. And <laughs> it's uh, really actually, and also, um, you know, everybody I know is going to ask you about Army Hammer and working with him, which I, I would be interested in, but I also know, you know, Anne Doubt is a kind of underappreciated <sighs> character, a great actress. <sighs> and you had some some scenes with her that I wonder if you have anything to say. Anne Dowd is up there with one of the greatest actors I've ever worked with. I, I was beyond... Um, she did some scenes. I can't remember. I don't even know if it's in the film, but where she starts... She started improvising. Ben let us really improvise occasionally in scenes. And she started like screaming at me and telling me like what a whore I was and when I'm going to go off. And she went and I was just crying. I mean, I wish the camera was on me because (laughs) I was just (laughs) crying my eyes out because it was so, it was just every thought she has as the character is, is so right and real and, and imaginative that, that anything she says as the character is just on point and it's razor sharp. Um, and it's funny because also she's in my experience, the like 
sweetest lady in the world. So. <laughs> I know she's so lovely and so yeah. warm and like, and so kind and like, and sort of modest. And yet like as this character, it was like, she's, she's remarkable. I totally. And then I was lucky enough to do this Margaret Atwood reading with her and, um, and Sally Hawkins not so long after. So I got to see wow. her again. We were reading her, new, um, her Testament. We were reading extracts yeah. from her book at the national theater. So I got to see her again real soon after that film, which was a really nice treat. <laughs> well, if you haven't already, you should definitely track down, uh, I think it's compliance was the sort of mm. indie movie that I think led to her getting handmaids and mm. this whole later career renaissance that she, I mean, that was a really oh, great wow, little indie. Oh, wow, I haven't seen it. Yeah. So for you in Rebecca, is there one scene that maybe demanded the most of you? I think about the Manderley costume ball where there's so much going on where mm. the, the faux pas and all of that, but maybe maybe there's other things. Was there one that stands out as maybe the you had the most pause before going on set that day yeah there was a couple um i think both for army and i the one where he reveals the truth about what happened to rebecca and really for him it's this huge long monologue which is really difficult because people don't tend to talk in monologues and so i think ben shot that really brilliantly to take the curse of having to sort of like reveal this whole truth you know we've been building to that point in this story so it's it's very it's very narrative it's very much from a book so it's difficult to translate that onto screen but we were filming it in this barn in the middle of the english countryside and there were birds tweeting everywhere and they couldn't get to them so they had fake owls on sticks <laughs> trying, to, <laughs> trying to scare these birds out so the army could do its monologue without tweet 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 over the whole thing <laughs> um so there was the challenge of the birds and uh, maybe it was hitchcock haunting us actually but um there was the challenge yeah, of the yeah. birds but there was also this really emotional scene and one of the reasons i wanted to play with this character is that that moment when she finds out the man she loves murdered his pregnant wife and and the only thing she can say is spoiler alert oh god sorry oh god <laughs> no it's good it's fine you are um, yeah. and um she's not really pregnant oh god no not <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop, I'll stop. Um, oh no can we cut that <laughs> no, <it's> like... <laughs> anyway um she uh really ruined it um she anyway uh my character though her response in that moment is very unexpected and 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 the sort of trying to to sort of live inside that was one of the reasons i wanted to play the part so that was a big day nice. for us nice okay the last few minutes i just wanted to I, I thought i found something that if it's true i thought it might be a, a kind of fun way to move towards the end here i read that for you i don't know if it's a song or an artist but you have a musical association with almost every role. Mm. So can you reveal for us, let's, you know, some of these bigger roles that everybody's seen, let's mm. say, maybe I'll prompt you if you can remember what was the cue. Let's go, let's go to Cinderella first. What were, what was your, and I guess I'm assuming this is like in the trailer or before you go out. Cinderella was both sides now, Joni Mitchell. It was like, what's that line when she's like, dreams and feel, and Ferris wheels, the, this dizzy dancing way that you feel when all your something's come, when all your dreams come real or something. And I remember <laughs> thinking that if I was wanting, I wanted to sing it in, I wanted, I just, I read that song I listened to. And also Eric Bibb, um, The Light is Worth a Candle. I listened to those songs just constantly during Cinderella. Nice. Uh, did you have one for Downton? Downton, I had a scent. I had a really strong floral perfume that I wore every season. Um, so that was, it's sometimes it's not music. It's like a, a poem or a smell or a, yeah. Baby Driver. I mean, it's not, there's no lack of music in that one, but. Yeah, uh... <laughs> Baby Driver was, was the soundtrack. Um, yeah. But, um, and the, and the oh God, what's this song in the recording? Ding, 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 baby, let me take you. <laughs> <laughs> in the restaurant scene, I used to listen to that all the time. <laughs> Darkest Hour? Do you know what I did? I mean, Darkest Hour was just before one of the scenes, I watched the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan <laughs> and just was distraught. Um, and I, that was a... <laughs> I did have music for the darkest hour too, but I can't. I can't remember exactly. I have playlists on my Spotify actually. Oh, nice, <laughs> Mama Mia! And yesterday, I'm assuming it's probably self-explanatory. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and I guess Rebecca. 
Rebecca. And I thought, what did I listen to over Rebecca? I listened to Idiotech by Radiohead quite a lot because there's like a, <laughs> yeah. like a sort of, like, <laughs> it's building a building and it's kind of sending you mad. Um, right. uh, but what else did I listen to? Rebecca, I had a poem. I, I read Mad, Girl, Mad Girl's Love Song by Sylvia Plath which is I close my eyes and all the world drops dead. I think I made you up inside my head. And um, you, 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 you sung me moonstruck and kissed me quite insane. And it's all about, to me at that time, about falling in love, but not really knowing if it's real, if it's really happening and if he's actually going to ruin your life or not. And so <laughs> Almi and I actually both learned it and used to read it a lot together. That's great. Well, just as a final thing here, um, Netflix helps. Uh, if, if somebody hadn't somehow seen you in... Cinderella or Baby Driver, all these things earlier. A lot of people watch Netflix, they'll see Rebecca. And I guess for people that are curious, what's next? I've read about a variety of things that are coming up, I believe. The Dig, Pursuit of Love, Peggy Joe. Just um, maybe you can tease a little bit of that and what's what's left on the, what's highest on the bucket list, you know, for you at this point looking forward. Um, the Pursuit of Love I'm really excited about is directed by Emily Mortimer and she's written it and it's just most wonderful story about two women, two best friends taking very different paths in life. And my character is on a sort of train wreck really, but on, but in the best way and living by love and the other character is living, is taking a more conventional route. And it's actually written by Nancy Mitford in the, in the twenties, but is a most modern look on, on, on being a woman, I think, um, amazingly. And so I'm really excited about that. It's got a great cast. And what do I want to do more? I want to sing more. I have one role coming up that's been pushed a billion times because of COVID. So I can't, talk about it yet but it's like if you could imagine the most surprising part that I would play it's kind of that it's so unexpected the serial killer (laughs) that's that's not surprising at all (laughs) Um, yeah so that hopefully will happen I look forward to it and I have it's been a lot of fun following your career and thank you so much for doing this really appreciate it so much thank you (laughs) take care thanks very much for tuning in to awards chatter We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.